I thought I'd start this evening with a poem from David White. He says, That day I saw beneath dark clouds the passing light over the water, and I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I have before, life is no passing memory of what has been nor the remaining pages of a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven and finding himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. So to... Tonight I wanted to talk some about how it is that we recognize that we are free. The Buddha says, just as in the great ocean there is but one taste, the taste of salt, so in the Dhamma there is but one taste, the taste of freedom. So for many days now, I think this is the 12th, plus maybe a couple, I'm not sure, we've been exploring this path of liberation, this list called Transcendental Dependent Origination. So the description of how we come to freedom. So both this list and the one that in some senses precedes it, that of dependent origination, are based on the notion of conditionality, that, we, that things arise because there are conditions which support their arising. So the first list says there are conditions which lead to suffering. So there's usually some kind of ignorance or blindness which creates the conditions for a certain kind of consciousness. And this consciousness then creates the conditions for a whole set of perceptual steps where we, um, we observe, and we have experiences, and we see these experiences through the lens of that ignorance. And some contact is made with the experience through the sense doors, and that place of Vedana that we talked about a long time ago at the beginning of the month is present, the pleasantness and the unpleasantness or the neutrality. And we either like it or we hate it or we sort of tune it out. And that creates the conditions in which craving and clinging arise and we are often running for another iteration of our suffering, another cycle. 
So I suspect, in fact I know because we all know because we've been listening to you, that uh, after these many days and nights on the cushion here, you have had a number of reruns of your suffering stories. And you've had, I'm sure, sometimes a sense of like you're in prison with this story. You know, you're caught in it and it's coming over and over. It's sort of like being shut in a theater with endless reruns, right? And you can't get out. So I want to weave through the talk tonight a story that I quite like. I've known for a long time. It's a Sufi story. And it begins, it's a story about a man and um, he was imprisoned unjustly. And there were crimes that it was said that he had done and he was locked up in this deep, dark prison with nothing there but his own mind. It might sound a little like what you've been doing, actually. But, you know, the news is not all bad on these lists and so we'll leave him in prison for a little bit. And what we also know is that we can create the conditions in which freedom and liberation can arise, freedom from our suffering. So sometimes, you know, when we realize we're kind of stuck with our suffering, it actually inspires us to try to meet it. We try to understand it, and we, we know, all of you know this, I know you do at this point, that there's some way in which being willing to meet your suffering creates the seeds of freedom. If you'll only give that suffering your attention and your presence. And we've seen, as we've worked through this list, how when we do this, then some sense of faith and confidence begins to arise. And that opens into some really pleasant kinds of places of delight and rapture and, um, and an opening into stillness. And it's that place of stillness or tranquility that creates a kind of a sweet happiness and the conditions for that happiness. And when, they're, they're, when you're still and happy and have met your suffering, then it's possible for concentration to arise because that, those are the conditions that support your concentration. And then with the concentrated mind, you can see more clearly into the nature of your human experience. And when we see more clearly, when we see things as they are, when we see the real picture, then that place of disenchantment arises where you're not caught in the stir anymore and there's dispassion. And then finally, we arrive at the moment where, that we talked about a lot last night, when we're not suffering, when there is a moment of freedom. I kept thinking of all those freedom slogans, you know, from years ago, you know, free at last, free at last. And... Um, I sort of expect people to leap up from their cushions every now and then, free at last, free at last. So you have practiced, all of you, and I think there's probably not a person here who hasn't had some kind of freedom. So to go back to our story, after the man had been in prison for a while, 
his wife, who missed him and loved him a lot, uh, went to the king. And she said to the king, you know, I'd really like to send my husband a prayer rug so that he can do his daily prayers facing Mecca on a really nice rug. He could do his five prostrations every day. And the king thought about it. It seemed like a reasonable request. The the man could continue his practice. And so he let the woman bring her husband the prayer rug. And the prisoner was happy to get it. Seemed like a, a nice thing to have this prayer rug from his wife. And so every day he did his practice doing those five prostrations on the prayer rug. So every day we have done our practice and we have seen some freedom. And the, the sense is, certainly when I first encountered this list, wow, aren't we done? Isn't that enough? You know, freedom. But not quite. Because there's one more step that needs to happen to actually complete this cycle of liberation. (laughs) If you want the full title of the step, it's the knowledge of the destruction of the cankers, which sounds a little formidable. And so what it means is, really, we have to understand what has happened to us. We have to see what we have let go of, And we have to acknowledge the changes and transformation that have occurred. So these changes and the transformation come in so many ways. Rodney Smith has a lovely list of the different paths to awakening. And here it is. He says, from suffering to the ending of suffering, from form to formless, from noise to stillness, from divided mind to unified mind, from unconscious to conscious, from relative to infinite, from denial to surrender, from contraction to love, from restlessness to absolute contentment, from separation to non-separation, from morality to basic goodness, from knowing to not knowing, from doing to non-doing, from then to now. So the destruction of the cankers and the destruction of and the arising of freedom in this list is actually described in the suttas as the total freedom of an arahant. So this was another one of those daunting assignments for a talk, since I'm not an arahant, and I really can't tell you what it's like to be one because I haven't been there myself. And in fact, I don't even spend a whole lot of time worrying about am I going to get to be one or not. Um, But as one of my good teacher friends says, there is perhaps a third and one-half noble truth. And if you remember, the third noble truth is that there is an ending of suffering. And so in the third and one-half noble truth, that's when we remind ourselves that perhaps if there isn't a total ending of suffering, 
that there are certainly moments when there is no suffering and there is in general a lessening of suffering. And that I actually can talk about because I know that that is true. So that's really good news because how many of us are going to recognize total freedom in our lives, realize it in our lives? But all of us have moments of freedom. One of the definitions of the awakened or enlightened mind that I quite like is a mind that has absolutely no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. And this has always seemed like something that, you know, that, that's workable in terms of finding some moments that are like that. And my sense is that we all begin to have moments when there is no greed, no hatred, no delusion, if you check, you know, and look. And then we begin to collect those moments. You know, you have one, and then maybe sometime later you have another, and then maybe a long time after that there's another, but then the next one comes a little sooner, and pretty soon, you know, they happen more often. And if we recognize those moments, if we honor them with that recognition, and we recognize the conditions which support those moments of freedom, then that creates the conditions for more such moments to arise. It's so important as we hear these teachings, you know, sometimes they sound so lofty and so out there and so beyond our reach, but they are all intended as, um, as teachings that are designed for you to take and use to explore and to investigate your own mind and heart. So the Buddha wanted all beings to be happy. He wanted all beings to be without suffering and to be free. For freedom to be fully true, you need to know that it's true. So if you remember, the Buddha had that astounding night under the Bodhi tree. And he went through the experience of awakening. And there's that wonderful story of of him being on the road after he was awakened and somebody seeing him and asking him, you know, who are you? Are you a deva? No. Are you a prophet? No. Are you a this or that? Are you a man? The person finally asked, the Buddha said, no. That was a little astonishing. And the person said, well then, (laughs) what are you? And the Buddha said, I am awake. He knew that something had happened. Isn't that interesting? He knew he wasn't any of those things. What he did know was that he was awake. And it was such a big thing that had happened that he took several weeks to ponder it. And as we, I think we mentioned the other night, you know, he, for a while he wasn't even sure he could talk about it or teach it because it was so, it felt so enormous, whatever it was that had happened. And I sometimes like to think, you know, that maybe he even needed the time to kind of look into his own mind and heart and to understand fully what had happened to him. And eventually he was persuaded to teach and he went out and he 
began to, in some senses, do enlightenment. There's one teacher who says that he found out that enlightenment isn't something you are, it's something that you do. And I really appreciated the article that Gil read the other night with that wonderful description of the Buddha, that he'd gone beyond doubt and that he knew and he was confident of the content of his knowledge and he owned what had happened to him. He owned what had happened to him. I am awake. It's such an amazing and triumphant kind of statement. And then, out of that understanding, he taught. He taught for all the many long years of his life. And he taught with such power and such authority that his words are still heard and we, in fact, are sitting here 2,600 years later still talking about him. That's amazing. You know, I really don't think in 2,600 years anybody's going to be talking about Mary Grace Orr and probably not even Gil Fronstahl or Philip Moffat or John Travis or Heather Martin, maybe. But when I think about that, that's one of the things that really reminds me that something happened. Something really astounding happened and that it echoed in his teachings and people then could hear it. Often, as students leave retreats, I think I've heard this instruction ever since I started sitting 30 years ago, we say to people, you know, why don't you practice being a Buddha instead of being a Buddhist? So being a Buddha instead of being a Buddhist. That's a big challenge, right? So if you're going to be a Buddha in your life, if we're going to practice Buddha-ness in our lives, then you need to know what freedom you have. You need to know what has made you free. And it's important not to be questioning it and wondering, is it so or is it not so? We need some sense of confidence about what has happened. So this could feel a little discouraging, you know, how do I know? You know, is it... Is it true? What do I look for? It's kind of vague, you know. Know what makes you free. So this particular place on the list says, well, this is where you know the destruction of the cankers. So one of the definitions that I looked up about cankers is the malignant defilement of the mind. That sounds pretty awful. So then I thought a little bit, the word canker was kind of interesting because when I was a kid, you know, I probably like many of you, I had canker sores in my mouth, right? So I knew what a canker was in terms of being a sore that was kind of pesty and difficult and sometimes they hurt a lot and sometimes they came back over and over again. And then I did a little more looking around, you know, in that wonderful world of Google and discovered that they're, they're also, it's a word that's used in, the, in plant, um, the studies of plants. And cankers are a place where um, the tissue on the plant is either diseased or dead and also can be quite a nuisance. So we could consider that these are places in the mind and the heart that cause trouble, often over and over again. 
And they are certainly not conducive to a life of being awake, a life of wisdom and compassion, a life of freedom. They're a problem. So the three areas for the cankers, also called asavas, are the asava of sensuality, that of existence, and that of ignorance. So I wanted to look at them a little bit tonight. So we see the ending of our being run by sensuality. So there isn't a person here who hasn't been under the sway of sensual desires in a way that has been destructive. And for some of us, that's been being the victim of the desire for food or drink, caught in the world of eating too much or too little, or addiction to substances which alter the mind. And for many, many people in our world, um, those desires have really run the show. They've taken over their lives, often caused considerable harm, and often the experience is of being powerless in the presence of these desires. And the only way out, actually, seems to have been through spiritual practice, through confronting that suffering, through admitting how strong the, um, the desire is, and opening up to a practice where we connect to something that's bigger than we are. But that's not the only way to be run by sensual desires. Sometimes it's sexual energies and we get caught in that world. And probably most of us in this room have made at least one serious error in our lives where we've been caught by sensual desire in the world of sexuality. But even that's not all, you know. I mean, it gets even sometimes a little more simple. We've talked in here also about how much we want to be comfortable. We love comfort in our culture. And I was here during February when Guy talked about how everybody in the room creates their little Vipassana nest. You know, you have your nest with your cushions and your shawls and benches and backrests and chairs and it's sometimes fairly elaborate and it, but it's actually gotten simple because I was remembering as I wrote this that some years ago I went to a retreat and not only were there the cushions, the shawls, the chairs and the benches, there were teddy bears and photographs and <laughs> you know all of that kind of thing. It was a real little, people had created not only a nest but practically an entire house. <laughs> And you know, we have rain gear and walking poles and heated car seats and how many different flavors of coffee which have overtones of chocolate and berries and who knows what. I mean, we just, we're so hooked in that world. And when we begin to wake up, we realize we don't have to listen. We don't have to listen to that craving for comfort. It was really wonderful in the Feb- when I came to the February retreat. I'm a teacher here, right? I know my way around Spirit Rock. I can pretty much get anything I want at Spirit Rock because I know where to look for it and I know whom to ask. 
So, you know, I'm settling into my room and I'm thinking, oh, it'd be nice if I had. And blessedly, I caught it. And I realized, I'm not going to do that. And I didn't. It was such an because this is not my style. I like my comfort. And I'm a little fussy. And so it was so wonderful to kind of go, oh, look, I don't have to go ask the manager for this or go down to the lower hall and get that or do whatever it is I would have done to make myself, you know, extra comfortable. I actually survived quite nicely. It's fairly obvious, I think. And um, it was, it, there was such a sense of freedom of seeing that somewhere something had shifted just a little bit. We don't have to listen. And when we find that place of not listening to that desire and letting it go, we begin to imagine that maybe it might be possible to not be run by that ever again. This does not mean that you won't like chocolate ice cream. You just won't have to have it, you know. It doesn't mean that you won't enjoy the warmth of your shawl or of your bed or of being held by your partner. You just won't be caught in that addictive having to have. The experiences will not control you and you will see that they are not controlling you. So then this business of the asava of existence. When I thought about this, one of the places I began to reflect was how we bring our stories into existence over and over and over again, as described in that wheel of dependent origination. How, as Joseph Goldstein used to say, how we build houses of our stories and then we look out through the windows. That's how we see the world. And this is the place where we're continuing that wheel and where we are reborn again and again and again into the same suffering. So classically, sometimes this has been seen as the wheel of many lifetimes. And the idea is that you want to get off the wheel and not have another lifetime. I've found it enormously helpful. I don't know about many lifetimes, but it is enormously helpful as a a deep psychological truth of how we create cycles of suffering. Our craving and clinging bring more suffering into existence. Then there's birth of some new situation and that follows the same pattern through old age, sickness, and death. So here you are on this retreat and we're quiet enough and balanced enough and there's time enough to begin to see some of the patterns in our lives. And so some of you are probably seeing how you've created certain patterns over and over again. The same relationship, the same difficult job, Maybe the same way you slip away from practice or the same way your mind resists. Um, All the various ways that we are not so skillful and we do it over and over again. 
And a number of you in interviews have talked about how much you want that to change. You're really, really tired of it, you know. I don't want to do it again. Pema Chodron has a wonderful teaching and just the title of it is all you need to hear. The title of it is Don't Bite the Hook. Don't bite the hook. We so yearn not to bite the hook. So this is such an interesting place because, because it's the place where when we begin to see our stories then we can also sometimes begin to see where we aren't living it out again. Those amazing moments in our lives when you realize, I'm not doing it. I didn't do it again. You know, maybe you didn't react when somebody said something. Maybe, you know, you were silent instead of involving yourself in an argument. Whatever way it is where you didn't bite the hook and you didn't do that cycle again. It's such a wonderful moment. And it's one that we really need to recognize and to honor. So then the third is the place of ignorance. So the teachings talk about these three major ways of insight in our practice. The insight about impermanence, anicca, that of suffering, dukkha, and that of no self, no separate self, anatta. And again, you know, it would be really fun to have an evening where we could talk about all the insights that people had. Um, You've all had so many, and we've heard so many of them as you've come into interviews. Insights into impermanence and your own sense of your own mortality or grief for the mortality of another person, the ebbs and flows of the retreat itself. You've certainly seen for sure what happens around suffering and how we create it. And and seen, because you have enough time and enough silence to see where we cling, where we hold on, and where we create suffering for ourselves. And because things are so slowed down and time gets a little weird here on a long retreat, then that sense of self begins to thin out a little bit. And it's not so strong. You know, you don't have all the usual ways of creating self that we do at home with no family and no work and no familiar um, places. And so that even that sense of self begins to thin out a little bit. It's not so permanent. And, And we begin to realize that every time it solidifies, and here at the retreat, you know, every now and then it does, then all of a sudden there's more suffering. We see how much suffering this selfing process causes. So gradually we begin to see that we have indeed let go of some of these sore places, these cankers, and they aren't running our lives in the way that they were before. So we see the moments when these things aren't there. 
but just as important in the process of coming to freedom and liberation is that we need to see the moments where they still are there. You know, that really difficult place. And that these moments are very important teachers for us. You know, that they, they, we see where we are not yet free. That's where we bump into the wall of the prison again and go, oh, I'm still in here. I haven't completely gotten out. You might have had a furlough, but now you're back, you know. And so even though it feels like really bad news when such a thing happens, it's actually great that we're seeing it. It's good news because now you know, you know. And now you know where to work. And this very place where you're not free then becomes your teacher and your practice. I think it's really important to acknowledge as we look at this question of liberation that we have this path. When we really struggle with how to do it, we have the path that was given to us by the Buddha 2,600 years ago, and that is the Eightfold Path. That is, you know, Ajahn Sumedho, I can remember him sitting up here, you know, in, in full regalia, as much as a Theravadan monk has regalia, it's not so much actually. But he would kind of roar out, you know, these are the four noble truths. And then he would say, and this is the practice of a lifetime. Whoa. And that the Eightfold Path is the path that we walk. And if you walk it, then you will come to more freedom. So, It begins, as always, I'm going to go over it, sort of like telling a very familiar story, I know, with wise view. And that's, of course, the wise view often for us at the beginning is understanding where we are not free. It's seeing where we are still caught. And that leads us then into some sense of intention, of wise intention of creating a strong determination to find freedom in your life. And that you need to find a way, we see, to do this work in a way that does not cause harm. So not causing harm with your actions, nor with your speech, nor with your choice of livelihood. And we see that we need to train the mind. That this mind heart, this unruly mind and heart of ours needs a lot of work. And so we need to bring effort into that to learn how to be mindful, to be present inwardly and outwardly, and how to focus the mind so that we can penetrate deeply into the nature of our human experience. And so this, of course, spirals around because I always think of this as a great spiral. And we come around again to that place of wise view, which is at this point perhaps a little wiser and a little freer, but maybe not fully free. And so then we work our way around the spiral again, over and over again, creating the conditions because this description is also a description of the conditions that will bring 
liberation. So having that intention, living your life carefully, and training the mind and heart. Bhikkhu Bodhi says this about freedom. He uses the male pronoun, and I'm going to stay with it, and I apologize, I would have edited it if I'd had a little more time. In its fullness, the freedom to which the Buddha points as the goal of his teaching can only be enjoyed by him who has made the realization of the goal a matter of his own living experience. But just as salt lends its taste to whatever food it is used to season, so does the taste of freedom pervade the entire range of the Dhamma proclaimed by the Buddha, its beginning, its middle, and its end. Whatever our degree of progress may be in the practice of the Dhamma, to that extent may the taste of freedom be enjoyed. It must always be borne in mind, however, that true freedom, the inward autonomy of the mind, does not descend as a gift of grace. It can only be won by the practice of the path to freedom, the noble eightfold path. You know, there is no moment, there is no moment ever that does not have the potential of freedom. There's nothing that can happen to you, nothing, in which you cannot find a place where you do not have to suffer that suffering of desire and clinging. But we have to learn to find that place, you know, And so the question always is, in any situation, how can I end the suffering in this situation? My own suffering or that of others? Joko Beck said, not long before she died, she lived into her 90s, she said that she was still dealing with the same emotional psychological, social, and self-esteem issues she'd had when she was 16. This is maybe not good news. Only now she was behaving differently around them, and that's about the best you can hope for. So she found some places of freedom. She kept finding that place where she could stand, where she could be free. It's a geography. It can be so helpful to think of it as a geography. So it's there, it's findable in any moment. When you know this, you can look for it. Oh, this is awful. It's a really, you know, maybe you're in a, an argument with your best beloved or maybe you're really suffering someday here on the retreat and there's so much suffering. So that, then the question is, how can I be with this so that I'm not suffering? Where is that place? It usually involves letting go It always involves letting go and moving to some different way of being. And we practice this. 
That's really the important thing. We practice it. We practice searching for that place. And we practice knowing when we are there. And we practice knowing when we are not there so that we can continue to search. Because when we practice, we find the key. So to go back to our story, our man who's still in prison saying his prayers on his prayer rug over and over and over again. So many years later, after he escaped, people asked him, well, how did you, how did you figure out how to get out? So he said, after years of doing prostrations on this rug, he began to realize that the code for getting out of the prison was woven into the rug. And all he had to do was follow the instructions on the rug to figure out how to get through the locks and all of that and get out of the prison. I love this story. I love it that it took him years on the same prayer rug. It gives me a little hope. And it reminds me that really practice is the key. Practice is the key. There is a way to liberation. We can follow it. We can know when we are free. And we can find that place over and over and over again. The key is woven into your practice. And if you keep on practicing, you will find the way to freedom. If not complete freedom, some freedom. So I want to end with T.S. Eliot. He says, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started. We are already there. You are already across. We just need to see it, to know it, and to live there. So let's sit for just a few minutes.
Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.